0: Another day, Another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream, and you can holler. Hi, folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one minute's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 424, and it is April 26, 2010. It is a Monday. Finally, the show numbers and the show dates are not coinciding anymore, and we can leave that one behind. So what are we going to do today? Today's Monday. We're going to do your feedback. I've got some questions. I've got a lot of stuff going on out there in the media, and although you guys are sending me links on some pretty cool stuff, some interesting stuff, I'm going to give you my comments on the bill that passed in Arizona. I've been asked as a libertarian how I feel about that law. We'll talk about it, and you might be surprised at my answer. Um... I'll leave it at that until we get into the main topic of today's show. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of the housekeeping. Remember, first of all, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is the Lifesaver 4000 water filtration bottle uh, from Ready-Made Resources. I mean, you really need to check this out. It is uh One of the best implements I've ever seen as far as being able to make sure that you have portable uh, ability to drink the cleanest water possible under the largest variety of circumstances. It ain't cheap, but I'll tell you what they say about things that are expensive and good. They're only expensive when you buy them and they're priceless for a lifetime. That's how I feel about this product, so check it out. Up next, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is your source of herbal herbal uh, extracts, bulk herbs, everything to do with herbs. Now, that's really what they're all about, herbal medicine at its finest. And, you know, when they were founded, what they had was a, a vision of an herbalist in every home. Because doing these things really isn't hard. Putting together your own preparations and all is really not that difficult. The information's out there. I've done a lot of shows on herbs. And, you know, the thing is, You can only grow so many herbs and you can only find so many herbs locally. And there's a lot of times where you might need something you can't get. Great time to turn to them for their bulk herbs. If you want something already prepared for you, turn to them for that. Try the preparation. See if it does what you're expecting. And then teach yourself to make it yourself. I mean, that's really what these guys are about. They're not just about selling you a bunch of stuff. They're about empowering you to be your own herbalist. And that's pretty cool. Uh, Moving on from there. Uh, remember to connect with us, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. You can find links on our site to do that. If you ha- use iTunes, and you, but you don't subscribe to us on iTunes, please do that. Hey, you know, I'm going to ask you a favor today. If you're an iTunes user and you've never written a review of the survival podcast, consider writing a review, and if you see some positive reviews, rate them as helpful. Uh, I've got one person out there that was pretty nasty with their review because they don't like us, and... Uh, They got a few people that say the review is helpful, so that kind of pushed theirs toward the top based on which review was the most helpful. So if you could do that for me, I'd appreciate that. Um, On the uh, stuff like YouTube, I want to let you know I have a couple videos for you to check out today. One is on my channel. And it is uh, just a slideshow of the garden progress this far, so you can see what we've been doing in our garden up till now. And we'll do some more interactive video in the future with the garden, but I just wanted to kind of give you a baseline of what we're doing. And the other one's actually on my buddy Hal Dodge's channel. It's just me and him out doing a little bit of fishing for some white bass. So I'll put links to both of those videos today. But remember, check out YouTube. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members, and I want to do something today, I'm just going to list uh, all the companies that give you some sort of a discount if you become an MSB member, okay, so here you go, and again, these are uh, companies that give you a discount, I'm going to tell you what they do, just the fact that they offer some sort of a discount program for MSB members, Safe Castle, uh, LLC, Western Botanicals, who we just talked about. MERSradio.com Survival.com which is Ron Hood's website TerraPrints Inc. The Berkey Guy SelfSufficientLife.com Fire Pistons from Wilderness Solutions Backwood Home Magazine Global Sun Ovens High Mowing Organic Seeds Smith & Werder People Powered Machines Patriotic Items for Sale Survival Gear Bags Honeyville Grains Shelf Reliance Seeds of Change and Common Sense Prep Hey, I just wanted you to realize that those are all the companies that just give discounts. There's also a ton of ebooks, a ton of videos, and you're supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. So there is a good ROI there. So consider joining the member support brigade today. And with that, let's go ahead and, and get into the main topic of today's show. And I won't make you wait for the teaser I gave you at the beginning. I've got a lot of emails. I can't say who because there's so many about this new law in Arizona, and everybody wants to know what I think about it. And I'm getting emails from two people in two very different camps. I'm getting emails from the purest libertarian camp that are saying this is this is you know going to be people pulled over for driving while Latino and show us your papers. And this is like the Nazis and and all this other stuff. And then I'm getting people that are just like, whoa, this is time we do something i fall somewhere in the middle on that. Let me tell you, first of all, I do support this new law. And if you haven't heard, if you've been under a rock somewhere over the weekend, the state of Arizona passed a law on Friday. uh, And the governor, actually they passed it earlier, but the governor signed it into law on Friday. What this law simply does, it takes the federal law that says you can't be in the country illegally and makes a state law that says the same thing so the state's officials can enforce the law. Uh... It also makes some very specific provisions against exactly what the civil rights advocates are claiming they're concerned about. It it does not allow a cop to see you driving down the road, look at you, go, oh, there's a Latino. The Latino could be here illegally and pull you over for no other reason. It does not allow that. And if you think it does, you haven't read the law. What I've seen is a liberal interpretation of the law could be interpreted to, no, read not just one part, but the entire law. If you read the whole part of the law, it requires the same reasonable suspicion to pull somebody over for anything or talk to somebody for any reason whatsoever. It is not so they can go round people up. Also, you people that are comparing this to the Nazis in World War II, when the Nazis stopped you and asked you for your papers, if you didn't have them, they either took you out in an alley and shot you or put you in a concentration camp and nearly starved you to death, eventually gassed you and incinerated you. This would allow the state to hold these people and then turn them over to federal authorities for deportation. Nothing more. And therefore, I don't think it goes far enough. Let me tell you what I would have done with this law if I would have set it up here in Texas. I would have done almost everything the same. I would have been a little bit more clear that you cannot stop somebody because of their race. It actually says that in there, but I would have been a little more clear. I would have put it in giant letters on the top of the law, Provision 1. Just to shut everybody up. But I would have went a lot further. I would have said being in the nation, be in the state of Texas illegally is punishable by 30 days in jail for a first offense. At which time you have the opportunity to be released and voluntarily deport yourself from the state of Texas. I'm not saying you gotta go to Mexico or Guatemala or Vietnam or wherever you came from. All I'm saying is you gotta get the hell out of Texas. On the second violation of the law, you would do five years in jail as a state-level felony. Because you were here illegally, you were told to leave, if you want to use federal uh, deportation, we would help you do that. If not, you know what? Here's my plan. Every week, all the people that have to leave get a free bus ride to Washington, D.C. So, I'm a little bit harder on this than I think some of you guys even would expect me to be. But the other side, it absolutely would be wrong in any way, shape, or form, for us to be out there and taking these people and just stopping them because of the color of their skin. That's wrong. But you know what wouldn't be wrong? This is the other side. So a guy's driving down the road, happens to be Latino, you don't pull him over. And this law does not allow that. Okay? It does not. And I'm sure there'll be an article, and as much as I love Lou Rockwell, I'm sure this week there'll be at least two articles on Lou Rockwell inferring that it does. Alright? It does not. But, I'll tell you what would be legitimate to me, Officers walking up to a whole group of Latinos standing at a at a day work facility and going, "Hey, where's your ID? You guys are all mingling around here, loitering, all right? If I'm if I'm standing there, they have every right to come up and ask for my ID, not to detain me, not to taser me, not to tear gas me. Say, hey, what are you doing here? You're just kind of hanging around like this, and it, this is, you know, there's like a whole bunch of you together, you know? Hey, who are you?" We have that right now, folks, for a variety of reasons. The only difference is, right now they could go up there, get your ID, run your run your stuff, and see you're wanted for something, and take you in on that warrant. All this does is add to it what you could be detained for. It doesn't change anything about the way that people are addressed. So, kudos to Arizona. Not kudos for being a little bit more, and I think the governor did everything she could to to capitulate and sign this bill, because she was scared crapless to not sign this bill, honestly. And you know what, if you think that this bill is about racial profiling or Nazism or something like that, before you decide that, close your mouth, open your mind, get the bill, and read it, not the piece that somebody tells you to, from front to back. The entire thing. And then, I'll tell you this, if you show me a point... Where the cops in Arizona start acting like Nazis, I'll be the first one to sound the alarm and say, this needs to be stopped. But don't get in the way of enforcing a law that's already supposed to be here. Let's go ahead and take the next question. Okay, and I briefly talked about this one last week, but I was asked this question by a lot of people. This particular person I'm answering today is Brian. And what Brian is asking me about is a documentary called Food, Inc. I've been asked repeatedly if I've seen this. And there's a reason I'm I'm answering it more specifically today than last week. And it goes right hand in hand with this thing that Arizona's doing with the immigration law. There's two sides to the immigration story. And if I'm going to give you my let's crack down on the illegal immigrant side, then maybe we can blend it with something that explains why these people are as much wrong as they are victims. And Food Inc. does a good job of that. Food Inc. is not just the story of how our food has been genetically modified, genetically manipulated. It is not just a story about the atrocious sanitation conditions that our meat is grown in. Folks, if you watch this movie, I'm going to warn you, you may never want to eat standard off-the-shelf beef, pork, or chicken ever again, specifically chicken. And you may find yourself dipping a little bit deeper into your wallet to uh, to buy free range of organic meat. In fact, le- let me read you what Brian says. Brian says, yes I watched the movie. I heard about it and I didn't want to watch it. My friends kept pushing me so I watched it. It was a real eye opener. I was surprised with some of the info, but not all. I love to eat chicken, pork and fish. I eat beef on occasions. My wife and I are going to stay more organic and eat free range. It's more money, so we'll have to see how it works. I don't remember hearing you talk about this, but if you did, sorry to rehash it. So no no apologies necessary there, Brian and I've been doing the same thing. I've been eating as much grass-fed, free-range, uh, known-sourced meat as I can get my hands on. I- I'm not content just to deal with meat without added antibiotics, which is what a lot of, like, is being advertised now. you got to think what added antibiotics means. There's a lot of scams in the food industry. That's one. That doesn't mean that the animal is never given antibiotics. They weren't given any additional antibiotics over and above the amount of antibiotics that are supposed to be given during fe- by federal regulation based on the way that they're being raised. That's kind of a scam now, isn't it? And, And there's a lot of major producers doing that. In this movie, what amazed me was how we had this situation where these chicken farmers were like, yeah, come on down, I'll let you in my chicken house. And by the time the documentary crew got there, they're like, sorry, I can't let you in. And what it was is people like Tyson were saying, hey, don't you do it. Don't you let these people into these chicken houses. And they have no windows, it's completely dark in here. And one lady from Pilgrims, I think it was Purdue, it was from Purdue, let the film crew in. And she walked through and she just picked up tons of dead chickens and dragged them out. So I do this every day. She said, someone has to say something. Of course, uh, Purdue stopped buying from her the next day. And it showed how deeply in debt these farmers were. So that's, that's one side of this movie. But you know what you get from the other side of it? How illegal aliens and illegal labor fits into this entire machine. And how it enables it. And how without it, it wouldn't exist. How they send all these guys out to these chicken houses to catch the chickens and throw them on the trucks. They're all illegals. All of these factories and plants, they're all minority workers, inner city workers, and tons of illegal aliens. They've paid nothing, then they're treated like crap, and the company views them no higher in status than they view the animals that they also abuse. Look, I am totally opposed to animal abuse. I am not opposed to eating animals. I will take a chicken, and I will hang it upside down in a cone, and I will cut its throat, and I will let it bleed out, and I will eat it that night for dinner, and I will not shed a tear over it. But it will be a chicken with a fulfilled life that has a life that actually is livable for a chicken, that is the way that a chicken is supposed to, be, to live, or a cow. Or if I go out and I hunt, and I take the life of a deer, a deer had a decent life. And it's part of the food web. It's part of the food chain. Man is a natural predator there. But we don't have to be an abuser. We don't have to be cruel. We have an intellect and we should use it. So if you have not watched Food, Inc. yet, please watch it. And when you do, think about the other side of the equation on this illegal immigration issue. You know what? I'll ask you, how many illegal immigrations hammered nails to build your house? A lot of you have no idea. But a lot of you know. If you bought your house in the last 15 years... And it was new in the last 15 years. It was built within the last 15 years. Especially if you're in a state in the South, and you bought a house that's half of the price of what people pay for an, a like house on the other side of the country, odds oh, are illegal labor was used to build your home. Does that mean you should not buy a home in the South uh, that was built by... No. But it does mean you better understand you are as much a part of the problem as everybody else in, in, the, in the sphere if we're going to fix this problem, we don't need what the, what the, the politicians are coming. Oh, we need is comprehensive immigration reform. No, we don't need comprehensive immigration reform. Because what that is is a code word for freaking amnesty, which we do not need. Here's what we need. We need a program that, one, I hate to say this, but Bush was right, allows people to come here documented, to do work, but documented in such a way that when their work is over, they go the hell home. Period. Because there is a need for this labor pool. But they also should be respected and treated with decency if they're going to come here to work. Number two, if you're here illegally, you should leave the second you're apprehended by anybody, including an apartment security officer. If you're detained for any reason by law enforcement at any level, and your information is run, and you're in our nation illegally, you should go the hell home now. There should be no roadblocks, nothing in the way. Go home, right? Or go to jail. Those are your two choices because it's the law. I have to follow the law and you have to follow the law. But there is the other side. The way these people are being harnessed and used, I won't call it slave labor because it is by choice. And when you say things that are inaccurate that way, you sensationalize them. It's the same crap that a lot of people in our camp, you know, kind of went overboard with the health care bill. It's death squads. It's not death squads, hate. Right? So when we say slave labor, we're doing the same thing. But it's not slave labor, but it is abusive work conditions. It is atrocious work conditions. Watch this movie. You'll get a new respect for it. And you'll also get a new understanding of where our food comes from. And maybe you'll take a little bit more control. Maybe you'll put a little bit more effort into growing your own foods. Or at least finding out where the hell your food comes from. Let's take another question. So this next email comes to me from someone we'll call Courtney. And Courtney says, Jack, question, what do you believe is more of a priority given the potential upcoming false recovery and or depression? Paying off credit debt, securing rural land, or stocking up on food and gardening? Background, I ask because I'm a relative newbie to survival mentality. My husband and I, age 30, no kids yet, have a lot of debt that accrued before our enlightenment, mostly credit card, mortgage, and student loans. I will obtain a master's degree as a healthcare professional next year. Despite Obamacare, I still have a, de- a decent paycheck straight out of school. Since we have money coming in, I'm interested in where you feel it would best initially be invested and where the bulk should go. I'll just stop there. Um, they've given me a little explanation of where they're living. Uh, I'll tell you what. Here, let me, we do not, I'll I'll read the last little sentence here. We do not want to stay in our current house neighborhood, but given the possible recovery and subsequent depression that uh, that may follow, I question my feeling that buying rural land is our priority. Thank you, I appreciate your input. There's a reason I brought this question today, and it's mainly because I can't give you a specific answer. I can't tell you that this is exactly what you should do in your situation. All I can do is give you my input and tell you what I would do, And that makes this a tough question. I like to take tough questions because it shows that I don't have all the answers. I don't want to be perceived as somebody that claims to have all the answers. But the first thing I'll tell you is it costs absolutely nothing to list your home for sale. So if you have a home you don't want to be in, I don't care how upside down you think you are on the mortgage, put it for sale for a price you would be willing to take today, stick a sign in the yard, and see if anybody buys it. Somebody might buy it. Nobody can possibly know your home's for sale if it's not listed for sale. So go find yourself a discount real estate agent. Say, look, I don't want you to put a lot of effort in this, but I would like it listed uh, in the multiple listing services. I'd like a sign in the yard. If we can find a buyer, you can have the deal. If you, can, if you don't want to do that, go do uh, you know, a buy owner thing. Uh, don't even list it in MLS. If you've got a good drive-by site, just go get a sign from the... From uh, anywhere, you know, from a hardware store or whatever, put it in the yard. Make up some pamphlets, explain what the house is like, stick them in a little tube and see if anybody buys a house. So That's that's number one. If you have a house you don't want, so try to sell it. It may not never sell, but try it anyway. Number two, the bulk of your debt right now is in credit cards and mortgage. I am going to tell you that I would put the emphasis on getting rid of the credit card debt. It, you probably have enough time. You didn't give me how much debt you have and how much your income is and how much you can apply toward it. But odds are, if you get really serious about it, do the Dave Ramsey thing and go to Rice and Beans for a while on what you're eating. And uh, don't go out and don't party and just crack down on this thing. You probably get that credit card debt knocked out in a year. And I bet you can. I bet you're thinking right now, he doesn't know. No, I can't. I bet you can if you want to. That is going to be a ball and chain just taken off of you. And it's going to make everything so much more flexible. So at the same time you're paying off this debt, maybe somebody stops by and goes, hey, yeah, I'd like to buy this house. And they go, but I'll give you 10000 under what you're asking. And normally, you wouldn't be able to take that. But if you had twenty k in credit card debt, which is now gone, you see what I'm saying. All of a sudden, in your life, you have this net game, and maybe you can get out of there. The next thing. If you want rural land, start looking. Start shopping for it today. You have no idea what it's actually going to cost you yet. And you're going to look, and if, you, if, you, if you surface shop, you're going to see the most expensive, easiest to find stuff. So start shopping deeply. Again, shopping's free. In fact, while you're paying off your credit cards and you're not going out to dinners and things like that, you and your husband need an activity together uh, that's low cost. So for the price of gasoline and some uh, computer Internet service, you can do quite a bit of shopping for rural land within, let's say, an hour to an hour and a half to two and a half to three hours, depending on what you want to do with your future once you move. Because there's probably land out there you can find where you can improve your living conditions, start building up a little bit of a homestead, and still have a relative you know, city-type life outside of school once you're done with your degree. Next, even though your degree is in healthcare, care, since, since you said you're getting a master's degree, I'm, I'm understanding here it does not sound like you are a nurse and it does not sound like you are a doctor or a nurse practitioner. It sounds like you're more on the administrative level. Uh, should I be wrong and we not have the big double dip recession that I'm forecasting, um, you'll probably have a great career ahead of you. Uh, because administration is going to be a huge cost inside the healthcare profession, and there's going to be a place for people highly educated to do that type of work. So that's what it sounds like. I think that you have a decent future uh, if we have uh, a sustained recovery. Uh, If we have the false recovery and a drop, I still think you have a decent job. I think it's probably one of the best places you could be right now. Gerald Celente would tell you the same thing, one of the places we completely agree, uh, that that is probably one of the best sectors to be in right now. So I I like where you're at there. I don't see uh oh yeah, and also says student loans. Okay, that is in there. So student loans and the credit cards gotta go. If you don't get serious about the student loans right away, here's what's gonna happen. Uh twenty five years from now, you're gonna have a name for your student loan like you know, like Lassie or or Laddie or Lady, like a pet, because it'll still be here. Student loan is the one thing that people leave around in their lives for so long it's unbelievable. Uh, if you were just starting out school, I would tell you ways to, to cut down the debt in the first place, but now you have it, so you've got to deal with the debt. People would tell you, don't worry about the debt, because if the economy crashes, screw the debt. It doesn't work that way. When the economy crashes, people go after the debt harder than ever before. They're not going to forget about it, especially the government, and the government's probably who you owe for most of the student loans. So the debt's got to go, but start working on the life you want. I, I think maybe the most important thing you can do, and I think this is, this is not specific to your question. This is for everybody out there listening today that's unhappy with any part of your life. Sit down with the most important people in your life you deal with on a daily basis. Your wife, your kids, whoever. And make a list that says one side what you don't like about where you are, what you don't want in your life anymore. And I can tell you put dead on the topic because you don't want it and you don't like that. You might think you like that if you're a credit card person that goes out and buys stuff and crap like that and you haven't been converted yet to getting rid of your debt. But you don't like the debt. What you like is the freedom to go buy stuff. And those are two totally different things. The freedom to go buy stuff is one thing. You're just achieving it through the use of somebody else's money. So... Everything you don't like, you're too many people, you don't like your job, you don't like, you know, your tea I don't care what it is. Whatever you don't like, and make another list of things that you do want in your life. Describe your ideal life. Now, odds are, and pretend you have, there's no monetary limitations to this. What is your ideal life really like? And, and stay away from crap like, oh, I would sail around the world, unless it's really, really what you want, okay? Stick to, if you're just going to live, Right? People think, I ask people, what would you do if you won $100 million? And I go, I party, and I get a limo, and I you know, what are you going to do once all that that rides over? Just your daily living. What would it be like? Define that ideal life. There's a reason you have to do this. This becomes a target. This is what you're working for. And I know this maybe doesn't sound like a survival topic, but here's what I'm going to tell you. If you're listening to this show your version of that is going to be remarkably similar to everybody else listening to this show. There will be a lot of differences, but at its core, it's going to be very, very similar. And what it's going to end up being is a life that's highly sustainable. Now, it might look a little different to the person next to you, but that's the underlying components of it. You're going to want to live sustainably. And I don't mean in an eco-friendly way, though that will be a natural byproduct for most people. What I mean is that you'll want a lifestyle where if you just get fed up at work one day because of some government bureaucracy crap, you can just write a little letter that says, hey, you've got two weeks to find somebody else, turn it in and feel better about yourself, and then figure out what you want to do next in your life without causing ultimate catastrophe in your life. When you're in a position to be able to do that, you're also in a position to deal with most disasters. And then you can kind of ramp up from there to deal with the more severe disasters that we might have to come to. But what I don't want people is freaking out, thinking you're running out of time and stuff like this. I want you working on the best life you can build for yourself. Because my belief is, even if the whole system crashes the way I'm saying it's going to be economically, there's still going to be something left to put back together and rebuild with. And the people in the right mindset, with the right preparations, are going to see the next crash as an even bigger opportunity than the last crash. In case you haven't noticed, I haven't been suffering through this first crash. Because I was prepared for it. And I think a lot of you really haven't suffered through this first crash. Some of you have had to make some adjustments... But maybe your 401k balance went down, but your day-to-day life hasn't really changed very much. Why? Because you're smart. So build your life. And what will happen is, if you safeguard things a little bit better this time, you pay your debt down. The next time there's a crash and everything goes on super fire sales, you'll be able to buy everything you want for pennies on the dollar. But start defining what that perfect life is today. Without that, you're aimless. You're like a guy trying to get from Houston to Philadelphia that doesn't have a map, doesn't know where he's at, and doesn't know where he's going. Never going to get there. But if you give a guy a map, say, hey, you're in Houston, here's Philadelphia, go there, the person that can read and has enough gas money to go from point A to point B will get there 99.9% of the time. Where the person without the map and without the goal, without knowing where they are and where they're going, will never get there, ever. It is that simple, so define it for yourself. Let's take another question. Here's an interesting question, and it's basically two questions in one, really. I'll read it to you. It comes from Ken. Ken says, Jack, do you think that a left-handed shooter should learn to shoot right-handed? I'm currently building an AR-15 from the lower up and am down to the upper receiver purchase. In my research of several companies and upper platforms, I have only come across one company, Stag Arms, that makes an upper and a lefty version. There may be more, but I'm unaware of any. As a long-time hunter-shooter, I have been shooting right-handed rifles and shotguns my whole life. I have run into guns that I could not shoot left-handed without losing a few, uh, a bit of my mustache. What is your advice? I have been told that I will, have troub- if I will have trouble with gas hitting me in the face if I go with a right-handed upper but shoot left-handed. Thanks, Ken. All right, um, Ken, first of all, let me tell you the, sim- the simple solution the Army uses for a left-handed shooter. They have this little device called a brass deflector, and it also helps deflect the gases that, that snaps in um, on a standard, uh, and I guess they don't even use these, you know, the, the M4s, so they don't even look like the M16A1s uh, that I trained with, but they had that upper handle, and they just snapped in there, and the brass would come out and hit that and deflect forward instead of backward. So even though you were shooting left-handed, the brass didn't hit you in the face. It wasn't a great solution, but it worked. And there's probably accessories that will do that even better. So that would make the right-handed shooter able to shoot something like the AR-15 left-handed. However, this is, wh- this is where I get into, like, what are you really asking me? Because you said you've shot right-handed your whole life. I don't really care which hand you are. I don't care what your strong side hand is. I want to know what your dominant eye is. If you are left-eye dominant, you should be shooting left-handed. If you are right-eye dominant, you should be shooting right-handed. The end, over, and out, finished. If you want to be the best shot you can be with a rifle. Now, some people have extremely good vision in both eyes. And those people can generally pull off shooting with either hand. But they still have a dominant eye. And you're always going to shoot better if you you use that dominant eye. Some people, like me, have such poor vision in one eye that shooting left-handed is all but impossible for me. I can do it if I have to with a handgun it's relatively easy cuz I can still with a handgun use my right eye dominance but when it comes to a rifle or a shotgun it's extremely difficult for me to shoot accurately with left hand uh, shooting why because my vision corrected in my left eye is 2090 2090 my vision in my left eye without my glasses you might have never even heard a vision reading like this 2200 Not 2,200, 20 slash 200. Legally blind. So there's no question what my right which eye is my dominant eye, obviously. But for many shooters, there is that question. Generally, the easiest way to determine this is extend your arm out into the distance and put your thumb over top of an object in the distance, say another 20 to 30 yards away. Cover the object with your thumb. Close your right eye, close your left eye. When you close your dominant eye, your thumb should appear to almost jump to one direction or the other, exposing the object to the other eye. Whatever eye that is, that's your dominant eye. That should be your predominant shooting eye. When it comes to the left-handed question with ARs and certain other uh, weapons uh, that are of the tactical mindset with ejection, there is that issue. But, again, it can be handled with accessories or buying a left-handed upper. If you've shot right-handed your whole life, odds are, uh, Ken, that you're probably a right-eye dominant shooter. If you've been able to shoot well that way. Uh, especially since many of the weapons you've shot probably didn't have the requirement that you shoot uh, right-handed. let face it, if you're sitting there with a single-shot shotgun or a double-barrel uh, shotgun, it doesn't matter which hand you use, whichever one works better. I think the big problem is there's a lot of left-handed people out there that are right-eye dominant. And they have this natural feel for the left-hand uh, position. But the problem often is, and this is what you see when you see a brand-new shooter hasn't been trained at all, it's really easy to see what they call cross-dominance, which is I'm left-handed with right-eye dominance or I'm right-handed with left dominance. That's my wife. My wife is right-handed like most people, but she's left-eye dominant. And the first time she picked up a rifle in front of me, she held it with her, with her right hands up, and tried to look down the barrel with her left eye, and we had to change the way she's shooting. So, number one, I think every shooter should learn to shoot with both hands to the best of their ability, because it may be required in a tactical situation. Number two, determine your dominant eye and learn to shoot uh, the majority of times with that eye. Number three, if you have a dominance pro eye dominance issue like a left-handed eye and you, you want to build an AR-15 or any other tactical weapon, do everything you can to create a southpaw version of that weapon that's designed for you to shoot as best as you possibly can. Number four, I am not the end-all be-all answer on this. If you shot right, eye your, right-handed your whole life and you shoot well that way and it works for you, then maybe you should just shoot right-handed uh, forever. But I'll tell you what, if you have a dominant eye, it is a clearly dominant eye. You're gonna shoot better with that side. Uh, if it wasn't true, then every Olympian in the world that shoots for for gold medals wouldn't do that, and that's exactly what they do. Uh, when you go into the military, the very first thing drill sergeants do stand in front of you, determine your eye dominance, and say you're a right-handed shooter, you're a left-handed shooter, and they don't care. They absolutely do not care uh, where you where you come from in life as far as whether you're right-handed or left-handed. It's all about vision. Putting it as as bluntly as I can, if I take you and I put you in a position where everything's working against you to shoot, but you can see, right? So you have to shoot, you know, weird like a gangster or something, or I put you in a position where, you know, you have to be laying on your back and still firing a rifle. I can put you in any kind of compromised situation. But if there's a target at reasonable distance and you can see it, as long as you can point the weapon at it, you can probably hit your target. So we can do everything wrong. Not that we should, but we can, and we can still put rounds in the general vicinity of our target. If I blindfold you and give you a loaded weapon, I'm running away, and I'm getting down and low and into a hole in the ground as quick as I can because I have no flippin' idea where you're about to fire. Vision is key when it comes to shooting. The most important component, so follow the dominant eye principle. Uh, but if you have to shoot left-handed, build the weapon to fit that. Okay, this is interesting. A gentleman by the name of Ray sent me this, and here's what it says. For a crazy person, you're certainly right about the vast majority of... You certainly are right the vast majority of the time. Perhaps we need more crazy people. And he sent me this link from the Atlantic magazine called The Next Empire. And for those that are maybe newer listeners to the show, uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe a year ago and all in that range, uh, I was coming out with some of the time that I think a lot of people questioned. And that was, I was saying... China needs uh, a China if they want to become like America. And China wants to become like America. Not politically, but economically... And with the the strong middle class that we once enjoyed, and all the growth, and new roads, and and new houses, and subdivisions, and and all the stuff that we've done here in America, some that's been very, very good for us, some that's been very, very bad, but most of which has been envied by the rest of the world. And for China to do that, they need a China. Now, what do I mean by that? In America, we have turned to China as a cheap labor force. And we have all our crap made there, and we, we pull resources from there, and we've exploited the Chinese relationship. And we really have, and anybody that doesn't think we have, hasn't studied history. We've done it in a lot of other places as well, but China is one of the places we've really kind of utilized so that we can have this kind of laid-back, middle-class lifestyle and let somebody else do all the crap work. Just like we bring illegal immigration in to do the crap work we can outsource. So if China wants to emulate us, they need a China. And I said China's going to do that in Africa. And China will build an empire in Africa and they'll do it with money. They'll take our money that they're 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 borrowing against us and they're using to create their own fiat money. We won't go into an economics lesson today. But China's got an awful lot of wealth. What they're doing is they loan us money and they convert those loans, those bonds, those treasury bills, into real assets. And they take that into places like Africa, and they buy mines, and they buy all types of things. So here's an article that kind of justifies what I've been saying for a while now, called The Next Empire. Here, I'll read a little bit of it to you, and it's by Howard W. French. All across Africa, new tracks are being laid, highways built, ports deepened, commercial contracts signed, all on an unprecedented scale and led by China, whose appetite for commodities seems insatiable. Do China's grand designs promise the, transforma- the transformation at last of a star-crossed continent or merely its exploitation? The author travels deep into the heart of Africa searching for answers. And I, I don't want to read you this whole article because it's really long, but there are some things uh, that I really want to uh, to bring out of it for you. Here, kind of a positive note. The uh, little excerpt here, statistics are hard to come by, but China is probably the largest single investor in Africa, said Martin Davies, the director of China-Africa Network at the University of Pretoria. They are the biggest builders of infrastructure, they are the biggest lenders to Africa, and the China-Africa trade has just pushed past $100 billion annually. Davies calls the Chinese boom a phenomenal success story for Africa and sees it continuing indefinitely. Africa is the source of at least one-third of the world's commodities, commodities China will need as its manufacturing economy continues to grow. And once you've understood that, you understand China's determination to build roads, ports, and railroads all over Africa. Davies is not alone in his enthusiasm. No country has made as big an impact on the political economies of the social fabric of Africa as China Uh, has since the turn of the millennium writes Dambisa Moyo, London-based economist, in her influential book, Dead Aid, Why Aid is Not Working and How There is a Better Way for Africa. Moyo, a 40-year-old Zimbabwean who has worked as an investment banker for Goldman Sachs and is a consultant for the World Bank, believes that foreign aid is a curse that has crippled and corrupted Africa and that China offers a way out of the mess the West has made. I agree, sort of. I think foreign aid to Africa has been an abysmal failure. But I also know what the Chinese are doing. The Chinese are doing what we do. You go into an impoverished country and you offer them loans and build their infrastructure. And by the time they have all this wonderful infrastructure, you own and control it. Because they owe you more than it's worth. You put them in the debt. You put their farmers into debt. You put their tradespeople into debt. You hold their debt and you control them. And some people would look at that and say, well, this isn't that what China's done to the United States? No. No, they haven't. Because they can't control the United States. If they try to exercise anything against us, they kill themselves. And I don't mean with nuclear war. I mean that we owe them so much money, and there's no way for them to recoup that money. There's no way for them to truly exercise control over a nation like the United States of America... That they have to kind of play ball with us, And what they've decided is, we'll take the leverage created by the relationship with the U.S., we'll re-leverage it in Africa where we can control things like nations that don't pay us on our debt. And we can control it by simply offering them more debt, because it's fiat money that we create out thin air just like the Americans taught us how to do. So because of that, we can get into a point where we completely control the economy in, in a very passive way. We're not going to bring our totalitarian government down here. They'll set up their own totalitarian governments. We'll have relationships with the governments. We'll have ownership of infrastructure. We'll have ownership in the mines. And we'll end up with these nations owing us their soul. And it may not even be that malicious in their heads when they're doing it, but that's what they're doing. And I'm not saying we're better than them. We've done the same things ourselves. That sounds like the corporate business policy of a little organization in America that we call Monsanto. Exactly the way they operate. That's what the Chinese are doing here. Could it be good for Africa? Yeah, sort of. I can tell you that the relationship the United States has had with China has been good for China in some ways. The problem is that these areas are so impoverished and their land has been so raped and so destroyed so over great, so so abused by agriculture, that that is is the, the key value to the land. It's not just the mine and what comes out of the hole in the ground, or the road or the infrastructure that gets items from one place to another. It's also the ability of the land to produce, and I don't know that we'll see anything that helps preserve that out of the Chinese. They're a little bit behind us in the whole environmentalism world, and we're not exactly blazing a trail. So... I think this is interesting. I, I want you guys to maybe read this article today. It's a very long article, uh, but you'll you'll find a lot of information in it. And I do like to you now. I don't like to be like, "Hey, look, I was right again." But I do like to point out that it's not that I'm so smart that I can figure these things out. I'm telling you, if you'll pay attention, you should be able to see things like this coming. And now you see what was Looney Tune statements a year and a half ago become fundamental reality statements and being picked up by mainstream media. China's buying Africa is what it comes down to. And here's what you have to ask yourself. 20 years from now, when Africa is much more developed than it is today, and the Chinese have massive ownership in it, and they've created an export economy and an import economy, they've created the ability to extract the resources from Africa that they need but they've also created enough prosperity in Africa to sell them back the stuff that China is good at producing, and they have a much bigger ownership stake in a continent than they do in a nation like America, what will China do with the U.S. then? How much money will they loan us then? Where will they put their efforts? In a nation that plays ball with them their way, that really can't oppose them, that really can't fight back if they ever wanted military conflict, which means they don't need military conflict. When you have the bigger stick and your opponent knows it, you don't ever have to threaten to use it. Okay. When both parties have a great big stick and can beat the hell out of each other, that's when fights usually break out. So the safer military move for China is to put their assets and their efforts into a place like Africa, form friendly alliances as best they can, do friendly exploitation, is the best way I can phrase it, create out as much trade as they can, create as much of an ownership stake as they can, and then begin to divest themselves, not just from the United States, but from every other relationship they have with equals. So that they form a coalition of the subservient. That's what's going on here, folks. And it spells bad things long term. Because one... Our greedy-ass imperialistic government, there I said it, not all of it, but parts of it, will eventually decide, hey, we need some of this Africa stuff too. And that brings us to the conflict with China. That's one potential problem. The other potential problem is simply China taking their ball and going home, and we've kind of become accustomed to including their ball in our games on the court. Uh, I've said this before, my biggest fear for the United States is not war. It's the nation moving into a point where we are so irrelevant to the rest of the world that the people here that still have the ability to cause a lot of problems for the rest of the world through military influence and force will start doing more of that to try to reassert our dominance. I'm okay with us not being the most dominant force on the planet. Our founders never wanted that. What I want to be is the freest nation on the planet. Um, and And we have some real concerns about that. China... Buying out Africa, walking away from the table in the long-term future from us. That's part of the problem. Again, check this article out. I think you'll find it very interesting. Let's take another question. Here's a question I can't answer. Absolutely, cannot answer. I'm calling on all the ladies in the audience to help me answer this question. I have no experience wearing a skirt or a dress. My wife wears the skirt or a dress, and we go to, like, a function or something. Not day-to-day. She's kind of a blue jeans and shorts kind of gal. So... You guys tell me which. I'll read this question, it comes from a lady called Nikki. Nikki says, Jack, what do you recommend for a holster while wearing a skirt? I have my concealed carry permit in Minnesota, I carry a Caltech 380 auto. In the winter I carry it in an inside the pants holster, which is very comfortable. Now that it's getting warm, warmer, I retire my jeans to the closet and wear only sundresses. I still want to be able to carry my 380. I do not want it to be seen because a lot of my friends are hippie anti-gun folks. Maybe need some new friends. I love what she says here if shit went down I would be the one to save their asses but I would still be the bad guy for having a gun I was thinking maybe some sort of a thigh holster but one would not one that would not slide down my leg because I bike a lot through the city I'm pretty crafty and could make one with proper instructions if you have any thanks Nikki. so ladies that wear skirts and dresses that carry and pack heat help me out here what would you advise Nikki, to do Um, I have no idea I'm absolutely, positively stumped, and I didn't cheat and use Google to try to find an answer for this. So, I want answers from the audience on this one. Please comment in today's show notes. If you know of a good carry system for ladies that wear skirts and dresses, please let us know. Because, like I said, everybody out there that legally carries should, should and you shouldn't have to compromise the clothing you wear. And if you want to wear a dress, then you should be able to wear a dress. Uh, dudes, don't do it. You, you won't look good. Anyway, other than that, let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, the last one I have for you is an article somebody sent me, and it is on AJC.com. Uh, that is better known as, what the hell, I don't even know what this is. <laughs> they have no name on the top of their website. It just says AJC. I, I guess it's atlanta. It's something in Atlanta. Well, this is the dumbest. Folks, you're going to have to look at this website. This is the the worst branded website I've ever seen in my life. AJC in a little ball. I have no idea what I'm supposed to uh, supposed to actually be looking at here, other than the uh, the article that's on it. And uh, it's called Backyard Farm Movement Yields Rare Political Hybrid, and it's by Mark Davis. It's a fairly uh, well-written article, and it comes from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So there's what it is. In the guy's byline, I can see the site that I'm on. Good job, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You might want to get some branding consulting. Anyway... um, I'll read you parts of the article. Who says we're polarized by politics? Blues can unite with reds, especially over Rhode Island red. On the right, Republican legislator who thinks people should have the right to use their land by God any way they want. On the left, bandana and sandals uh, wearing set who embrace urban gardening and, green and uh, as green and globally correct. In the middle, chickens, goats, corn, beans, tomatoes, and just about anything else that thrives in Georgia's red dirt. Republican Bobby Franklin from Marietta has has his newfound political cronies agree, to their mutual surprise, that those plants and animals should be able to grow wherever landowners want. But local authorities don't always see things the way locavores do, sometimes frowning on too many crops or certain livestock being raised in city neighborhoods. Thus, a state lawmaker like Franklin gets involved and suddenly finds himself in an alliance he didn't anticipate. I'll take allies where I can find them," said Franklin, who admits he cannot grow a weed. One is Decatur resident Stephanie Van Parys, executive director of the Oakhurst Community Garden. Van Paris, who can grow just about anything organically, of course, is bemused to find herself in the same path, legislatively, legislatively speaking, as a lawmaker who once defended the right of Segway riders to carry firearms. I don't know why she's surprised. Uh, when Franklin filed the Georgia Right to Grow Bill, Van Perry supported it. I'd really like to get in his head and know what his reasoning was, she said. Here's his reasoning, and this is what you hippies don't get. His reasoning is it's your house, it's your land, it's your property, and it's your freedom, and you should be able to do whatever the hell you want. If you want to grow a chicken or a tomato, go ahead. And if I want to grow a chicken and a tomato and defend them with a shotgun... I should be able to, too. This, I, I, you know, I'm not going to read the rest of this article. I'm going to let you guys read it yourself. But basically it goes on and on with this back-and-forth mentality of how there seems to be this big conflict. How can we have this political alliance between kind of these, this permaculture-like hippie organic crowd and somebody like an evil Republican state representative? Now, again, this guy's not a, this guy's not a Congress clown up in Washington, D.C., this guy's a state clown who usually these guys are a little bit more in touch with their constituents because their districts are pretty small. A state-level representative district, not a senatorial, but a state rep, man, that's not a very big district at all. If You can piss off 20 people in your district, and they tell 20 people, and you're out of a job. So these guys are usually in better touch. But if a Republican followed a Republican principle, there's no other way they could come out on this. And what, of course, the people that oppose it are kind of the artsy-fartsy-richy people that don't want a chicken in my neighborhood. It'll hurt my property value. And they're probably more likely to be Republican than Democrat. But if you were actually a Republican following Republican principles, which very few of them do, especially in D.C., the concept of limited government is supposed to be at the forefront of what you believe. Now, what they're saying, the, the the people against this, is this is an example of the state interfering with the people's business at a local level. So this is like just like us saying Washington coming in telling Texas what to do, or Washington coming and telling Georgia what to do, with the, the person in Marietta or you know a subdivision that has their own little mini ordinance is saying, is hey, the state's coming in here telling us how to run things, and we don't like it. And and understand on a Republican side, hey, you guys are supposed to be opposed to this. No! Not this time. You know why? Because most of the time, when a larger governmental body comes in with a new law ordinance, what does it do? It restricts liberty. This law restricts government. This is what I call a good law. This is what our lawmakers should be doing. They should be looking for places where government has gone too far on the restriction of individual liberty and using the legislative process to obstruct the, the, the incursion into liberty. In other words, it makes perfect sense that a die-hard Republican would say the eco-hippie, sandal-wearing freak should be able to have a little coop of chickens in his backyard, pick his own eggs if he wants to. In fact, the person most likely to get in the way of that from a political spectrum... Not from a marketing spin, but from the pure political step spectrum, is going to be the statist or the progressive, because the government should tell you how to make your eggs safe. You are not smart enough to raise a chicken on your own. All the chickens should be raised in government-controlled facilities. So we don't see, and that's that's where this, you know, and you see the conflict. And you see why the parties are not grounded in their own principles when you see the way that people respond to these things. So, kudos to this guy again. What was his name? Uh, Forgot his name already there with uh, my little tangent. Uh, Representative Bobby Franklin, Republican from Marietta, Georgia. Unfortunately, if you read the whole article, you're going to find out the law didn't get passed. I don't even understand how it didn't get kind of really any traction, so he's going to take another run at it is what it sounds like in the next legislative session. But here's the reality here. For for anybody that's confused by why an evil Republican would get on board with something like this, because it's about your individual rights. It's about your individual sovereignty. It's a law that shouldn't have to exist. Most good laws would be laws that should not have to exist. Here's what happens. A person has liberty person has individual sovereignty, person buys their piece of land, they own their piece of land, they're not creating a disturbance, they're not putting 50 roosters on their roof crowing every morning. You're talking about a person with a little chicken coop and, you know, 10 laying heads or something like that. And somebody in the neighborhood goes, I don't like chickens in my neighborhood, and they call their congress clown. Because the person that complains is more politically active than the person that doesn't complain. All of a sudden there's a local ordinance telling the individually sovereign person, get rid of your chickens. And government has incurred on pre-existing liberty. So the legislation here is designed to restrict government. Do you know what? We need more laws like this. If you think about this, this is a perfect illustration of the Constitution and where it went, when it started to go wrong. We had a Constitution put together by our founders. It was voted on and ratified, acknowledging the structure and framework of the government, the restrictions upon government, And then all of them looked at it after they did that and said, hey, we left a big hole in this thing. There's all this potential for abuse by this new government we've created. Let's get back together and put together something called the Bill of Rights. And they put that Bill of Rights together, and specifically one of the most important lines in the Bill of Rights that no one talks about today is the Ninth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which I'm going to read to you now, and it's one that we just don't talk to uh, about very often. Protection of rights not specified enumerated in the Bill of Rights The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. In other words, what the Ninth Amendment says is, if we missed anything, if we missed anything here, if a person has a right, they still have it. Unless it's specifically here, taken away by the Constitution itself, that right already exists. Because there were two camps when the Bill of Rights came out. One camp wanted it, the other camp didn't. The camp that didn't want a Bill of Rights didn't object because they were afraid of giving too much power to the people or too much restriction to government. What they said is, hey, look, guys, if we put out a Bill of Rights and we leave something out, then the government's going to turn around and say, since it's not in there, we can take it. So the Ninth Amendment was a compromise, compromise amendment. It was meant to make sure that did not happen. Of course, we've twisted it and we've forgotten that. So that's the Ninth Amendment. How the hell does this apply, you're asking right now, to chicken coops in Marietta, Georgia? Because... It's a constitutional question, honestly, if you want to look at it and examine it in a real-world situation. Is there anything in the Georgia Constitution or the federal Constitution or the Marietta-Georgia Charter that says a person inherently has a right to keep a chicken? No. But if it's their land and we believe in the rights of the private property of a citizen, and as long as what I do doesn't have a direct negative effect on my neighbor... In other words, if my chickens were causing a problem, I wasn't containing them, they were getting out and going into his yard and damaging them, then we have a property damage issue. But as long as that's not happening, I have that intrinsic right in this nation as a private property owner to as long as I'm not damaging the ecology or I'm not damaging the neighborhood and not hurting anybody and I'm not violating any specific laws to use my property my way. Government comes in and infringes upon that and the response of this legislator was to restrict government. This applies to the Constitution, and I said where it went wrong. First ten amendments all restrict government. When we move past to the eleventh and forward, most of the uh, most of not all of but most of the amendments to our Constitution after the tenth, if we leave out suffrage, if we if we leave out. You know, suffrage, which was women's right, uh, right not to discriminate. So a- anybody could vote at that point, you know, based on race and religion, uh, creed, uh, color. None of that could, uh, or sex, could, could interfere with. But we also have a lot of amendments that actually empower government, like the 18th, which prohibited alcohol, necessitating the 21st to repeal that amendment. Um, there's just changing us to uh, allowing D.C. to take place in the Electoral College, uh, there's a presidential succession election, uh, amendment. They, they generally were giving more powers or clarifying government's role. And there's still a lot of, I guess, amendments that did help people. But if you look at the Constitution as a whole, and let's you know, say from 1 to 27, the majority of things that you see in the Constitution restrict government and empower individuals. Where the main thing that our legislatures have done, from a city council level, to a federal level have been to restrict people and empower government. And you see this polar opposite and that's why you see this lady, this uh, organic lady that they have a picture of her here with her hat on and she's she's cutting stuff so she can plant pots vegetables out. She's confused by this evil republican. She wants to get inside his head and understand how could he possibly be on her side? Well, because it seems like this individual at least believes in your individual sovereignty. And if we just had more people like that, I think we'd be in a better place. So, I guess this is kind of a weird way to end the show because this thing didn't go through and it's just kind of floating out there. But I wanted you to think about those questions for yourself today and how they apply to you. And and question yourself once in a while politically. Because I want to end on something that, that came up. There was an episode, it got near a year ago that this episode was on. And I was really angry at some people that were writing me and going, this was like right after Obama's election or something like that. Stop calling Obama my president. He's not my president. This isn't my president and this isn't my government. And I said, of course he's your president. Of course he's your government. You know what? These people were elected against your, uh, against your vote or against your non-vote, either way. So it's just like if you're on a board of directors of a big company, And there's 20 of you guys. And it takes 16 people to hire a new high-level executive or promote a guy to a new high-level executive position. 16 people on the board have to vote yes. And you're one of the four that vote no. Okay? If that guy's in your department or in an area you oversee, he's still your employee. He's still accountable to you even though you don't want him. You have to work with him under the guidelines of the corporation that you represent. You have to hold him accountable. And if he looks like a jackass in his role... Six months later, the next time the board meets, you bring up the, the hey, look, we, we four of us had an objection to this guy. All right? We need to look at this guy's performance and evaluate it and keep it under scope. Here's some concerns that I have. That's doing your job. And I said that you need to be calling your representatives, at least calling your representatives once a month. If you won't do that, you're a crappy American. And I realized how that came out when this guy brought it up on the forum. And his, his, his feelings were hurt, and this guy eventually just got mad. He deleted his forum account, and he went home. Don't do that because you're mad at something I say. I'll make you a promise right now. Listen long enough, and I'll upset every single person who listens to this show at least once. I promise you. And sometimes i will be wrong. But what I was saying wasn't if you don't call your congressman, you're a crappy American. What I was saying is if you don't do anything, you're a crappy American. Whether it's through voting, whether it's through writing letters and emails, whether it's through calling, whether it's through talking to people about important issues, whether it's by example, whether it's by growing your own garden and eating your own food, whether it's by reducing your tax footprint, if you're not involved in some way at some level, then what you're saying is they can do whatever they want and you're okay with it. And you're as guilty as everybody else. To put it another way, there's an old quote that talks about what happens when good men remain silent. This is a tough time in our country. This is not time for good men to remain silent. So if I've ever said anything to you that's offended you, I apologize for offending you if I was wrong. And if I was right and it offended you anyway, then I'm going to ask you to turn and look to yourself and say, why did that bother me so bad? Is there something that I should be doing that I'm not? Not based on what Jack thinks of me or what anybody else thinks of me, but since it hit me so hard between the eyes. Is there something that I really believe that I should be doing, but I'm making excuses with myself not to do them? And if that's the case, be accountable to yourself and answer to yourself. If you just don't like what I said and it doesn't bother you, don't worry about it. Remember, I always tell you, with disaster preparation, with emergency preparation, with everything you do in your life, it has to be your plan, not mine. That's the same thing when it comes to politics and economics. But ask deeper questions, gain a deeper understanding, and when you feel something, if it really bothers you, if it really upsets you, it's probably something you need to look at deeper. And you need to look at deeper internally. And if you do that, you may find yourself speaking up instead of remaining silent. And different people will speak up in different ways. Some people will do it on the internet through something like I'm doing with a podcast. Some will do it by writing articles. Some will do it by calling congressmen. Some will do it by living an example of how you can be sustainable. Some people will do it through uh, tax revolt. Some people will do. Everybody will do it in the way that best fits their own ability. But remaining silent is no longer an option. Your nation, as you know it, is slipping away from us right now. This is not the time for silence. It's a time for action. I won't tell you what that action is. And I won't tell you that one action is superior to another. But what I will tell you is in this state that we're in now, in this place that we're in now, and in this time that we're in now, inaction is just as bad is being on the other side, helping take it down. To put it in a cliché, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So, if I said something in the past that upset you, and I was wrong, or I said something that was a blanket statement, like, if you don't call your congressman, you're a crappy American. Remember, I was in the car back then, weaving in and out of traffic, and I might have been answering an individual based on their statement, based on you as a whole. But today I'm telling you, if you're not taking some action to make this nation better, then you're definitely taking actions that make it worse. Find your strength. Focus on your strength and make yourself as free and as liberty-oriented as you can and be an example to others and take the actions that you can have the biggest impact of them. Do that and you'll find yourself on the right path. This has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. gets me